So I was up in the loft the other day um, looking for something, rummaging around all of the stuff that we have accumulated over the years. Over the years, we've moved around a lot uh, and we don't know what the future holds. And so we've kept hold of loads of stuff, particularly furniture. We call it just-in-case pieces of furniture, just in case we need it. I think we've probably got enough in our loft to kit out a small two-bedroom house. Uh, we won't be making a trip to Ikea anytime soon. But in fact, if you like sorting out lofts and you'd like to sort out our loft, do let me know. We'd love to hear from you. Um, but whilst I was rummaging around, I found actually, I didn't find what I was looking for, uh, but I did find this box. And, and in this box, um, there's loads of letters and cards um, that Anna and I have kept from over the years. And basically, these are letters and cards that we have written to one another. They were more so when we were courting. I don't know if you know that term. Um, and I thought, you know, I then started to look through them. And I thought it was appropriate that maybe I shared some of them with you this morning. What do you think? Are you up for that? Okay, no, I won't. That's really unfair because Anna's not here and they are quite creepy actually when I read them back. Um, <coughs> I was so spiritual back then. Uh, but letters sent um, in love to one another, expressing our undying love to one another. Over the next four Sundays, starting today, we are going to be looking at a letter, not one from in there, but a letter from the New Testament the first letter of Peter. Now, this letter was probably written by Peter, though some theologians have spilt a lot of ink trying to decide whether it was him or not. I think uh, for what we're seeking to do, that's not the issue, but we know that it was written by Peter. I think it was. And it's a Peter who got himself into all kinds of trouble when he was following Jesus. Very familiar disciple. He was part of Jesus's inner circle Peter, James and John. We know, if you know uh, the Gospels, that Peter encountered huge failure uh, when it came to following Jesus. He denied knowing him. But what we find is are these lovely stories of gracious restoration and forgiveness. And then on top of that, uh, Jesus doesn't just forgive him, but he also gives him great responsibility to be the first leader of the early church. And two of Peter's letters are then found in the New Testament, imaginatively named 1 Peter and 2 Peter. But unlike um, the letters sent between me and Anna, which were love letters, this isn't a, lo a love letter, but it is in fact a letter about love, most specifically about the love of God as demonstrated in the Lord Jesus Christ. And what we find is that Peter is someone who's been encountered by the grace of God. He speaks so fondly of the gracious love of God that is shown to the world. It's undeserved. If you want a good definition of grace, uh, my favourite one is undeserved kindness. It's a love that is unrelenting. It will not let us go. He who has begun a good work in you, the scriptures tell us, will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. His love does not want to let, let us go. And then towards the end of his letter, Peter writes a sentence about what he has written about in the whole of the letter. In 1 Peter 5 verse 12, he writes this about his letter. 
It's a bold statement. He says, this, this letter is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. In other words, he's saying, what I have written to you about is foundational for what it means to be a Christian. What I've written to you about is good news. It's the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, which I think in a nutshell is Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. And because of that, everything has changed. Peter uh, says that this is the grace of God because actually what I'm writing to you about is the greatest gift that you could ever receive. Forgiveness, a new identity in Christ, new life from the Spirit, strength for today and a bright hope for tomorrow. This letter, Peter contends, is all about the true grace of God. And we should stand fast in it. We should hold on to the truths that Peter speaks about because this letter is a letter of significance. He's trying to say, look, if, if you want to be wise, pay attention to what I'm writing to you about. The great reformer, Martin Luther, who wasn't shy of giving his opinions about some of the letters in the New Testament. He looked at the letter of James, he discarded it and called it a letter of straw. Uh, but about this one, he says, uh, it is one of the most noblest books in the New Testament, a paragon of excellence. It contains all that is necessary for a Christian to know. Uh, another commentator called Clowney, uh, first name Krusty, for all you... Um, he wrote, if you don't know The Simpsons, you won't get that joke. He, he said that 1 Peter is the most condensed... He's, he, he's actually, the, his first name does begin with K, so maybe it is Krusty, I don't know. The most condensed New Testament resume of the Christian faith and the conduct that it inspires. In here is everything we need to hear about. Another commentator called Jobes wrote that in 1 Peter, the life of Jesus and the believer's life are inseparable in Peter's thoughts. In other words, Peter not only tells us about the good news of Jesus, but he also talks about how that good news should impact us when we come to church to worship on a Sunday, but also when we go to work on a Monday. Peter is not just concerned about believing the right things, but he is also concerned about us living out those things wherever God has placed us. It's about the Christian life lived out in a kind of unbelieving society, which is what we find ourselves in, I would say, at this moment in time. 1 Peter, it's not just about orthodoxy, about believing the right things. You know, you've got people who want to believe the right things. They sing, I'm S-O-U-N-D, I'm S-O-U-N-D, I know I am, I'm sure I am. I'm, do, do you know that song? Yeah, okay. Um, I think it's got lost somewhere in, in the translation. But, but basically, it's not just about believing the right stuff, but it's also about living the right stuff. It's not just about believing right, it's also about acting right as well. You know, what do we call someone who focuses entirely on orthodoxy, but it's not then lived out in what you might call orthopraxy? It's hypocrisy. And Jesus called it out time and time again. But Peter says, no, you need to hold these two things together. But who is it that Peter was writing to? Well, in that opening verse, he's fairly clear. He's writing to church communities scattered across an area called Asia Minor, which is now modern-day Turkey, and divided up into five different areas. Christians in a place called Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And if you know those names and you know the book of Acts, then it, you may well recognize that some of the 
place names given here are also the place names that we find in Acts chapter 2. The, the church was in a place of waiting. The church didn't start on the day of Pentecost. It started when they waited. And they waited for the Spirit to come. And then the Spirit came and everything changed. And Peter goes out and he preaches his first sermon. And it says that there were people there in Jerusalem from Cappadocia, Pontius, and Asia. I like to think that when Peter preached his first sermon in Jerusalem, that actually those from Cappadocia, Pontius, and Asia were converted. They went back home. They started small church communities. And then some years later, Peter writes to them about how they should follow Christ. It's a flight of fancy but I quite like it. And we find now that Peter was writing to these churches, probably quite small, no such thing as a mega church. You wouldn't experience church with this number of people, even on a World Cup final day, um, you know, in those places at that time. There were small groups, mainly meeting in people's homes. They were a mixed bag. James, what did you say the church was earlier? An impossible, an impossible community. Where else would you find a bunch like this gathered together in Guernsey apart from the church. And this is what Peter finds as he writes to these different church communities. They're Jews and Gentiles, they're young and old, they're rich and poor, they're male and female, slaves or free. But what has brought them together as a community is their decision to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And what we find actually about Peter and the context he's writing into is that these small church communities were very much a minority in their wider society. And because they were a minority, because they were on the edge and not at the centre, what we find is that they suffered for their faith. They were probably marginalised by their society alienated in some relationships they had, maybe within their family, maybe within their place of work, persecuted both in word and in deed. The people that Peter is writing to, their faith is costly. It involves an element of suffering. You find that if you look in verse 6. Peter says, Now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. We know that there are trials and suffering taking place within those churches. And as you look through the book of 1 Peter, it's clear that suffering is part and parcel of following the Lord Jesus Christ. If anyone says to you, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, they're only telling you part of the truth. Because actually, when we follow Jesus, we will find that there are parts that are wonderful, but equally, alongside faith will come suffering and persecution. And we're going to think about that on another Sunday. But today, what I want to think about today is just pick out one word from our reading from 1 Peter 1, verses 1 to 12. And uh, it's the word exile. Do it there. It's the word exile. And I want to think about what exile is all about and then think about how we might respond to the experience of exile. In verse 1, Peter says, To God's elect, exiles scattered throughout Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And I think that Peter is addressing them right from the outset as being exiles. One, because it's a significant theme in the Old Testament. And there would have been Jews as part of those communities that the word exile would have resonated with. But two, 
I think is because many of the people that Peter was writing to found themselves in a place that they didn't want to be in. They felt like they were far from home. Maybe some of those in those churches are like the Apostle Paul when he wrote in Philippians. They desired to depart this life, this mortal coil, and to be with Christ, which Paul says is better by far. More likely, though, is that there were some of them who just didn't want to be in a place where they encountered persecution and suffering. Who does? They didn't want to be in what you might call a bitter place, but they wanted to be in a better place. They were longing for a heavenly home. The word exile is roughly defined as a forced absence from home. And it's all about being homesick. I was quite a pathetic child growing up, and I used to really struggle with being homesick. If I got sent off on any kind of camp or school thing and I was away from home, I just blubbed my way back home again very quickly because I felt homesick. I'm not much different now, to be honest with you, if you speak to Anna, but, but exile is all about being a stranger in a strange land. A bit later on in 1 Peter, Peter identifies those he's writing to as being aliens and strangers in the world. And since they've given their lives to Christ, they've had this realisation, this revelation, maybe as their minds have been transformed by the Spirit, that actually this world which we inhabit is not the end. There must be more than this. There is a new world to come where Christ is all in all and where we truly find ourselves at home. A poet called uh, Douglas McKelvey, um, he in writing about exile and homesickness, he puts it like this. The shape of that ache for another time and place is the imprint of eternity on our souls. There must be more than this. The ache that we feel and live with is a sign that we are in a place of exile, that we're aliens and strangers. And actually, this whole theme of exile is a key part of our identity as those who follow Jesus. And for those believers that Peter was writing to, it's very likely that because of their commitment to Jesus, that they weren't uh, so committed in their society. And because of that, they felt like they were out of kilter. Uh, a commentator by the name of Jay Elliott wrote this. He says, they're likely to have been met with the ignorant suspicion and verbal abuse typically directed by natives against those who do not share the history, traditions, customs, loyalties, and deities of the local populace. What they found is, is that they did not fit. Because of Jesus, they did not fit. They found themselves on the margins. This was not what you might call their first choice world. And I think Peter recognises that, which is why from the outset... He calls them exiles. It's part of their identity. I'm fascinated by this biblical theme of exile. You know, if you look through the scriptures, it's seen most clearly in the Old Testament when uh, the people of God were exiled from their home in Jerusalem and Israel to Babylon in 597 B. 
BC. We find the theme of exile comes up time and time again in the Old and the New Testament. I would say that the church in the West is in a place of exile. There was a time when we were very much at the centre, where people built houses around churches because they were very much at the centre of community life. All of that has changed. The church, I would say, is in a place of exile. We're no longer at the centre, but we're increasingly on the margins. I think that the Church of England, of which we are a part, really struggles with that. We're having what you might call an identity crisis. You know, it's strange that over the past couple of years, we suddenly found the Church of England front and centre of what is going on. A monarch dies, a new monarch is crowned, and suddenly the church is everywhere. But in a moment, the church is then dropped like a stone, and everyone's saying, well, why have you still got bishops in the House of Lords? Why are we still paying some of our tax to upkeep of your ancient buildings and all that kind of stuff? It's because we're no longer at the centre. We're at the margins. It's part of our identity. But I think what we find is, is that God, God is often at work, not at the centre, but on the margins. Exile can be found uh, by individuals, by families. We experience exile in all kinds of ways. And actually, you'd argue that exile is part of what it means to be human. It's about being separated, being homesick. Eugene Peterson, writing a book about Jeremiah, who was a prophet in the time of Babylon, the Babylon exile, he wrote a book called Run With the Horses. He said this, he said, we are exiled from the womb. We begin life in strange and harsh surroundings. We're exiled from our homes at an early age. We find ourselves in the terrifying and demanding world of school. We're exiled from school and we have to make our way the best we can in the world of work. We're exiled from our hometowns and we have to find our way in new towns and cities and in our case, in new islands. There are people who live in Guernsey today, maybe even in this room, who feel like they are in a place of exile. This isn't their home. It's not where their heart is. But for some reason, this is where God has brought them. Um, Eugene Peterson goes on, he says, these experiences of exile continue through changes in society. It doesn't, you know, life isn't like it was before. Changes in government, in values, in our bodies, our emotions, our families, and our marriages. You know, if you think about it, COVID was a massive time of exile for the whole world we found ourselves in unfamiliar territory. The exile, Eugene Peterson said, experienced by the Hebrews is a dramatic instance of what we all experience simply by being alive in the world. And I think that all kinds of things cause us to be in a place of exile. Maybe we get divorced. There's a death of a loved one. We're made redundant. We retire. Lots of people, despite the joy of retirement, struggle with retirement. I know, you, you know that from facts and figures because suddenly, you know, particularly those who have been really bound up in their career and it's everything about them. That's where they got their sense of worth and value from them. One day it's there and the next day it's gone. They found themselves in a place of exile and it's not always an easy place to be, which is why some clergy, even though they retire, still wander around in dog collars and dog collar pyjamas to bed because suddenly everything... Everything has changed. Maybe we go from one church to another and it's not 
like it was. Maybe we're part of a difficult church situation and it's not what we've signed up for. Family circumstances change. We experience exile without even leaving the security of our own home. It's about feeling dislocated and separated in places and situations. It's not our first choice world. It's our second or third or fourth or no choice world that we find ourselves in. It's a painful part of simply being alive. But the Bible talks about it and I think gives us some wisdom as to how we then might deal with exile, how we might even flourish in a place of exile. And I just want to briefly give four things, a psalm, some verses from Jeremiah, two words from 1 Peter, that I hope will help us to navigate exile. Firstly, a psalm. Um, I think you can probably guess which psalm I might use. Boney M. By the rivers of Babylon, we sat down and we wept. Psalm 137, written by people in exile. They did not want to be where they were. It was a psalm of lament. It's the most terrifying psalm in the whole of the Bible. Take a look at the last verse. It says, oh God, that you would take their infants and dash their heads against the rock. That's how honest it is before the face of God. And at times we find ourselves in that place where all kinds of bitterness and emotion comes out, where we're strangers in a strange land. And I think I want to say that in those situations, don't be stoical. It's not a time for the the stiff upper lip. I actually think that we need to engage our emotions before the face of God and those that we love and trust. And we weep with the tragedy of what we face. The fact that we're dislocated and far from home. Be honest. Second, some verses from Jeremiah. Uh, Most well-known verse in Jeremiah is Jeremiah 29, verse 11. It's the most Googled verse uh, ever, apparently. And what is it? You can say it with me. I know the plans I have for you. Plans to give you hope. I don't even know it now. Plans to prosper you and not harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. I would argue that it is the most misapplied verse in the Bible. Read the whole text. Not just that one. But I don't want to talk about those verses, but actually some other verses from Jeremiah 29. Jeremiah, writing to a people in exile, a people who are far from home, says this. Build houses, settle down, plant gardens, eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there, do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I've carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. What Jeremiah is saying is this. In the place of exile, don't keep on weeping and complaining about it, but commit to it. Jeremiah is saying to these exiles, even though Babylon is not your home, pray for it. Work to make it a better place. If Babylon flourishes, you will flourish. He's telling them to be present where they are. Philosopher uh, Heidegger talks about being in time and this idea that we can only be in the present. You can't live in the past. You can't live in the future. You can only be in the present. Martyred missionary uh, Jim Elliott puts it like this. Wherever you are, be all there. In a place of exile, Embrace it, get stuck in, and be there. And then two words from our reading from 1 
Peter um, that I think help us to deal and flourish in a place of exile. The first word is chosen, found in 1 Peter 1 verse 2. He says this, he says, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. Whilst the Christians that the Apostle Peter was writing to uh, felt like they'd been left out, they'd been rejected maybe by their society, because they followed Jesus, Peter reminds them of their new identity in Christ, that they have been chosen by God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. To be chosen in this context means that we belong to God. We belong to his church. There is a seat for us at the table. You know, at times in my life, and I know having spoken to others, we can struggle with feeling like we don't fit, we don't belong, we're not chosen. Maybe we have what you might call imposter syndrome, and we don't feel like we belong anywhere. We feel like we're on the outside looking in. I'm a middle child. Apparently there's a thing called middle child syndrome. Uh, the middle child is not the favoured first child, and they're not the baby. And so it can lead to a feeling for the middle child to feeling left out and not belonging. But when we come to Christ, everything changes. We take on a new identity, and a key part of that is that we belong. We're chosen, we're known by name, we're loved for all of eternity. We are part of God's people. And I think in a place of exile, we need to embrace the truth about us. Eugene Peterson again, uh, he said this, I, he said, if you wanna know um, who I am and what makes me tick, don't for heaven's sake look up my IQ or give me a Myers-Briggs profile, but set me in the company of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And it's in that company that we discover that we are chosen. Jesus said, I did not, you did not choose me, but I chose you. We're not rejected or forgotten. We're known and we belong to God. And we need to know that truth in a place of exile. Last point, rejoice. 1 Peter, I think, encourages this church in a place of exile to rejoice. You know, there's not always a lot of rejoicing at times in the church. We can be more like God's frozen people than his chosen people. Maybe we forget to tell our face what our heart is feeling. Maybe the joy of the Lord is so deep down within us that it struggles to surface. But Peter says in verse six, he says you should greatly rejoice. Why? Because of the gospel, the good news of Jesus and the difference it has made to your lives. Some time ago, I did a wedding, not here, at another church that shall go unnamed, and, and we sung the old classic, Shine, Jesus, Shine. We love that one, don't we? Um, <laughs> the bloke playing the organ is from Rent and Organist. I didn't know him, uh, but he absolutely murdered this hymn. He took Shine, Jesus, Shine, and he hung it out to dry. He really did. And I'm at the front with all of these people there. And the funny thing was that when he did that, seeing the joy that appeared on people's faces, they were cracking up with laughter because this hymn was being murdered. Uh, I was, it's quite infectious. I looked out, I couldn't help laughing either. Uh, but it made me think, wouldn't it be great to see more joy 
in the average Church of England church on a Sunday morning, not because of dodgy hymn playing, but because of the joy of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. A cause to rejoice. You know, Peter pulls out a few things in which we should rejoice in, in verses 3 to 12. It's what we call a doxology. It's a hymn of praise. He said we, we should rejoice because we've been shown great mercy. Mercy is God's compassion in action towards us. Whilst we're still sinners, Christ died for us. That we've been given a new birth, a chance to start again, the life of the Spirit, a living hope in Jesus, resurrection from the dead. We're shielded and we're sheltered. You know, we will be saved from judgment and death. He writes to those in those churches and to us now that the things that have been revealed to us, and I love this little verse at the end of this reading, that even angels, the things that have been revealed to us, even angels long to look into these things. What he's saying is, is we have much, even though we find ourselves in a place of exile, we have much to rejoice in. Tell that to your face. Karl Barth in Church Dogmatics, he said, the first distinguishing mark of the Christian community is praise, where we rejoice in the good news of God. Some people might say, well, if we worshipped in this way, or we used this liturgy, or we sung those songs, or life was different and I wasn't in this difficult place, then I'd be more joyful. I challenge you and say, that's the wrong attitude. We rejoice and we worship and we praise because God is God. And like Job, our watchword should be, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. So, exile. Peter was writing to those in exile, not their first choice world. It may well be that you find yourself in a place of exile. It may be that you find yourself in a place that you don't want to be in because you'd rather be at home watching the telly. That's not exile. This is a different kind of thing. But if you find yourself in a place of exile, how might you cope with it and flourish? Weep with the tragedy of it. Get stuck in and be present in it. Remember that you are chosen and rejoice because God is God. Shall we stand? We're going to sing a final song. And, and it may well be that you find yourself in a place of exile and, and actually you need God's help and strength and wisdom to make it through, there'd be some people just to my left here be very happy to pray with you and pray for you whilst we sing. So a prayer as we bring this part to a close. Father, we pray that we would be honest about where we're at, but equally that you give us strength to get stuck in. Help us to remember our identity, that we are chosen. And help us whether you give, whether you take away, to rejoice because you are God and you are good. Amen.